ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Before we get going, just a warning. What you're about to hear includes references to sexual assault, suicide, and it also has some strong language. Listen with care and look after yourself. Two and a bit years ago, an unusual email landed in my inbox. It came from a woman in Victoria who wrote, In light of all the recent media surrounding sexual assaults, it's deeply disheartening to see only negative media coverage of the reporting process. She was writing to the ABC complaining that our coverage of sexual assault cases was too negative and that it was making women afraid to report. In her email, she said, I myself have made a report over a year ago and had a fantastic response. Negative media coverage made it even harder for me to report this matter. At the time, sexual assault was all over the news. Rape survivor Grace Tame was Australian of the Year. Allegations of a rape inside Parliament House had broken, and there was even a historical and very much denied allegation of sexual assault against the Attorney-General. So she set us a challenge, a positive story about making a rape allegation. I was sceptical, so I put forward a counter-offer. Let's follow your process and see if you feel the same down the track. She agreed. And that's how I came to know Megan. Megan's 31 and lives in Geelong with her two cats and her husband. For the last two years, we've become sort of like pen pals. Some days we catch up on Zoom. Hello. Hi, Megan, it's Annika. Hi. Other times she records and sends audio diaries. Today is the 24th of May. Often we go months without talking, but inevitably we get back in touch. We're both determined to find out, can reporting rape be a positive experience? I don't know the details of Megan's alleged rape, and because it's a police matter, I don't ask. She tells me she reported it to police on a bit of a whim, in the middle of a workday, emboldened by the Me Too movement, and true crime documentaries she'd been watching. I never wanted to have to look another victim in the eye or a victim's family and explain why I didn't say something that could have stopped him from hurting somebody else. Police ask if she's willing to call her alleged rapist while they record the phone call. It's the scariest thing she's ever done. But he doesn't pick up. And at this point, she thinks that's the end of it. But eight months later, police arrest the man, and nine months after that, charges are laid. Before the case can go to trial, Megan has to appear as a witness so her evidence can be tested. It's called a committal hearing. She records her thoughts in an audio diary. It is 3.18pm on the 3rd of December. It's 2021, and Megan's just given evidence over video link from a room inside her local Office of Public Prosecution. From 10am till about 10 past 10, I was just frozen solid, just staring into the camera, just waiting for it to start. And then... 
the screen lit up in front of me and I could see a whole row of names down the bottom and I could see the name of the accused on the screen and that was very scary and confronting. She says the best solution the prosecution could offer was to cover the accused's face on the screen with a post-it note. I did the swearing in, which was so strange because it's exactly what they say in the movies. And I nearly laughed at that when I swore to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Then the questions start. At first, they're pretty straightforward. You attended this police station at this time and signed this. Is that true and correct? But over the day, they become more and more confronting. I've got my hands on the transcripts, and we've used an actor to represent the barrister. You suffered some trauma in your life surrounding your mum, is that right? Yes. I'll take these questions as carefully and slowly as I can. If you need a break, just let me know. Is there a point where your mum attempted to commit suicide in the family home? Yes. Did she do that leaving blood everywhere? Yes. You were required, as a younger person, to have to clean that blood up and assist her, I take it? Yes. Your mum tried to harm herself in your home on more than one occasion? Yes. Approximately how many times had you been exposed to your mum trying to harm herself? At this point, the judge intervenes. I was put back into the lobby for a few minutes kind of took in the fact that there are eight or nine people on this call who are hearing all about my personal family stuff and just kind of thought, well, fuck it. There's no privacy, there's no dignity in this. So if that's how it's going to be, then fine. I'm fighting back. He's not winning. Megan doesn't know exactly what's behind the questions, but she suspects the barrister is trying to muddy the waters about the source of her trauma. He kept asking the same thing over and over again, trying to catch me out. You meant this. You me- I know you meant this. It feels like gaslighting. So she claps back. And I put my hand up and said, I'm sorry, but I need a break. I came back in and I could see that he was rattled. And that was so empowering. And that was amazing. That's when I realised, wow, it's been a whole day. And he has not broken me. And he will not break me. Because all I have to do is tell the truth and not accept something that isn't true. And I feel like I'm winning. The cross-examination lasts six hours. It's gruelling. But she's confident going into day two. I'm the one in power now, and that feels pretty good after being in a powerless position. I was making a point of looking into the camera, looking at the accused's name on screen. When it's over and her testimony is done, she feels positive about it. I was confident that the prosecution team would see that I was a damn good witness. And I was confident that the accused was looking on and worrying about who he had picked as a victim probably realised that he'd made the wrong choice. The next day she gets a call. Her case is going to trial. It really feels like a victory. And I feel entirely prepared for a trial. 
After the excitement at the committal hearing, things go very quiet. Around eight months pass, and I don't hear from Megan. Then I get an email. She wants to set up a Zoom chat. Yeah, it says recording, so I think we're, we're good. So, yeah, do you want to just kind of start by telling me what's happened since we last spoke a few months ago? There's news. I was in Aldi and I had the shopping cart in one hand and my phone in the other hand. And then as soon as they said, and we have a trial date, I stopped walking and I just looked at my partner. The trial date is in May. That's another nine months away. It was really crushing because one of the hardest things is looking into the future and knowing that this is still going to be going on for a while. Um, Like moving house, but I don't want to do that before the court date. And it's just really annoying to have these things on hold for him. Four months after we chat, Christmas is about to roll around. It's now been a year since Megan's committal hearing, and I'm on holiday when a message pops up out of the blue. It's another audio diary. I clock the final name, Horace. Reading the article today, I just immediately broke down. That article is about Brittany Higgins, the former political staffer who alleged she'd been raped inside Parliament House. Megan's just learned Brittany has been hospitalised for her mental health, and there are fears for her life. She wonders, when her own trial comes around, how will she cope? Why do I have to do this? I mean, how much... How much more is there, really? When does it stop? When does it stop feeling unfair? I don't know. It was Brittany Higgins' case that initially inspired Megan to contact me requesting a positive story. But hearing her now, I wonder whether the empowering story she's looking for is possible. And I wonder if I was right to be sceptical. As the trial approaches, I fear it's only going to get worse. A few months on, I get another audio diary. Every day, I, for at least half of the day, I feel like I'm going to throw up. Some days, Megan struggles to hold it together while also holding down a full-time job. But she's just been handed her subpoena, so there's no way out. The way that that was issued was really intimidating. Um, Just having a police officer knock on your door in the morning, here's a subpoena, here's a bit of cash so that you have no excuse to not attend, make sure that you do attend, or there could be a warrant out for your arrest, this is very serious. The trial's only a few weeks out, and she feels the whole thing is just completely out of her control. The main thing that I think would make this a lot easier for me would be to just have somebody who's gone through this who I could talk to. The amount of people that have read my statements, that have processed my information, it's just so far beyond this dark little secret that it was for such a long time. The seatbelt sign has now been switched off.
It's day one of the trial. I leave Melbourne Airport and head straight to the courtroom. When I walk in, the only people in the room besides the jurors are the accused's family and me. And everyone's like, what are you doing here? And to be honest, I do feel like an intruder as the prosecutor outlines graphic details of the alleged assault, which I'm hearing for the first time. I won't repeat those details, but the prosecution's case boils down to this. Megan went to the accused's house to collect a book. They had a disagreement. He pinned her to a chair and orally raped her. As the prosecutor lays it out, I see the accused's father shake his head. Then Megan's called to give evidence, and I see terror flash across the accused's face. To protect Megan's privacy, they close the courtroom, so I go back to my hotel. That evening, I walk the two blocks to Megan's hotel room through the bright lights and bustle of Melbourne's Chinatown. I'm just going to meet Megan. I've never met her in person. Um, We've been talking on the phone since we were first in contact. So much has happened in that time, but I've never had a face to put to the name or the voice. Megan's waiting on the street with her husband. After two years of intimate conversations, it feels surreal to make awkward chit-chat about the weather in the elevator. I say how convenient it is staying a few blocks from the court. But for her, it's not convenient. It's terrifying. I mapped out every route as soon as I got the address so that I'd have backups and backups for my backups so that I didn't have to walk past the courtroom. Um, Knowing that the accused was going to be there, I want to hear what happened when Megan took the stand. She tells me it was far less stressful than the committal hearing. The barrister was a lot less aggressive, um, felt very respectful. This time, there was nothing about her family. Instead, the defence focused on inconsistencies between what she said happened and what others remembered her telling them. Each person's account was slightly different. Even her own diary entry contained some discrepancies. Oh, one of the questions as well was, was he wearing a top at the time? I know that in my diary entry, I said that he wasn't. And then in my police report, I said, I think he may have been wearing a T-shirt and I think it was beige or grey, but I'm not entirely sure. The thing is, the incident is alleged to have happened more than a decade ago. There's no way I could recall exact conversations or what I was wearing back then. But those recollections are what this whole case hinges on. And one of the witnesses has quite a different story. He says Megan described being anally raped when the prosecution's case is oral rape. That's not what I said, though. I may have said that I feared that it would turn into that. Um, That was a fear that I had at the time. Um... I'm saying it so I can say, look, I'm uncomfortable with this or please don't mention that in front of me. I leave for the night and let her get her head together for day two when her cross-examination will continue. The next day, I head back to the courthouse. I'm walking up Lonsdale Street, which is one of the main streets in the CBD, towards the county court. 
stepping inside for day two, I'm reminded of how disempowering this building feels to me. The bowing, the yes, your honor, are constant reminders of the hierarchy at play. I just feel my stress levels rising as soon as I get in this building. This whole environment just makes you feel a little bit like a criminal. I mean, it's a court, <laughs> but I can see how it would be very intimidating. I'm intimidated and I'm just a journalist. It's not a place I'd want to share my trauma. In a closed court, Megan continues her testimony. The experience, she'll later tell me, is like a tug of war between feeling empowered and disempowered as her story is repeatedly told and then undermined. What's more, the accused gets every document while Megan's restricted from knowing his case, which witnesses will be called and what they'll be saying. It feels like he has all the power. There's a room full of people discussing my experience and what I've said and whether I'm trustworthy and how they can undermine me and I'm not even allowed to know what they're saying. The accused chooses not to take the stand. The burden is on the state to prove its case, not on the accused to disprove it. Sometimes feels a bit like my trial. It's during this second day of cross-examination that the defence finally gets to its point, that Megan is making it all up. It was a lot more emotional today than it was yesterday. It was just really confronting, I think, to have talked about it for so long and gone into so much detail and then to actually finally have somebody just, yeah, look right into you and say, um, I put to you that this never happened. I put to you that you are making this up, that you are lying. And when the proposition started, it was a lot less personal. It was really strange details, such as saying there was no coffee table in that room. You know, I propose that you were lying about that. And I nearly wanted to laugh. When it got to saying, I put to you that Mr. X never raped you, I just felt like I needed to take a breath. And then I responded with, no, that's incorrect. Mr. X did rape me. On the stand, Megan is shaking and losing her voice. And then suddenly, the judge says, it's over. I was now free to go. Um, and it was said in a way that just kind of felt really uplifting, I suppose. And then the feed was cut in the room. Yeah, and it, I don't know, it was just so abrupt. And just seeing the screen flick off so instantly like that. Megan leaves the witness room and has a meeting with the prosecution team, who tell her she's done everything she can. Her husband's there. It's the first time they're able to discuss the case freely because he was also a witness. On the stand, she'd discovered some details in his account hadn't matched hers. He may have inadvertently helped the defence. It was really strange hearing questions that were uh, about what I had told him and realising that what he had said and what I had said were different. Some of the questions were about what I had told my partner nearly 10 years ago. In court, Megan said the parents of the accused were out at the time of the alleged rape, 
while her husband said she told him they were in the next room. I suspected that there would be different details anyway, um, because going through this process, I've realised the huge difference between how you would tell a story when you talk to someone that you know versus how you would recount an event to the police when you're giving a police report. As day two comes to a close, several discrepancies have now emerged between Megan's account and her witnesses, and it's those gaps the defence will seize upon. Hearing Megan's very personal story being questioned in such a public way makes me wonder whether the process really needs to be this brutal to be fair. Having an innocent person convicted and go to jail is worse than having a guilty person let free. This is Jimmy Singh, a criminal defence barrister based in Sydney. His website boasts he's got a track record of winning seemingly unwinnable cases. Sexual assault cases, child sex matters, um, child abuse materials. Jimmy's job is to represent people that by his own admission are often guilty of these sexual offences. But he takes real pride in his work. So I ask what motivates him. It's helping people. Um, often the question people ask is, how can you represent um, a um, guilty person? Um, and it's, 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 it's representing them. It's not trying to get them off charges. It's um, looking at the law, making sure the safeguards have been complied with by the police, because uh, that's very important. Um, that's the same safeguards that protects every single person um, that, that it's nearest and dearest to um, you. So to me, I'm not just protecting that client's rights, I'm protecting everyone's rights. Still, I wonder what it's like having to get up and ask those kinds of questions every day. Do you ever feel uncomfortable with the questions that you have to ask during the cross-examination of the complainant? Um, when I first started, yes, because it's, it's not natural. Um, you don't have these kind of conversations in a social setting with people. Um, but as a lawyer and as a trained advocate um, over the years, um, it's important to be able to ask important questions. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it'll still feel uncomfortable. If, you, if you're cross-examining a child um, witness, you know, it's hard, it's hard to do that. He says the prosecution can always object if the question is rude or oppressive. And as harrowing as it can be, cross-examination is key to a fair trial. That's really important to test the evidence because um, without testing the evidence, the jury or the tribunal of fact um, won't be able to properly assess and, and give it appropriate weight. I mean, after cross-examining a witness, it may come out that the evidence has very low reliability. There are also restrictions on what questions defence lawyers can ask. Questions about their sexual history, reputation and experience particularly. I think of Megan and the questions she was being asked about mopping up blood after her mum's suicide attempt. Does Jimmy think some of those very confronting ones were necessary? He says it depends on the context. It really depends on the factual issues in the case and the evidence and the allegations. I'm trying to think what relevance asking a witness has as to their mother committing suicide. Um, it's, it's generally, without knowing anything more, it appears to be pretty inappropriate questioning. 
but I don't know if it has relevance. I ask if he would recommend to women in his life that they go through the criminal justice system or opt for an alternative like mediation. He says while alternatives like compensation or mediation might be therapeutic, they don't do much to safeguard the community. Because you want to use it as a deterrent effect to keep the community um, safe. So other people don't think they could just do these kinds of things and get away with it. So I think by making a complaint to the police, going through the court process, it serves more than one purpose. On day three, I'm back in court to hear the closing arguments. The prosecutor tells the jury that all the witnesses were broadly consistent and their accounts go back over a decade. And he reminds them about Megan's diary entry, which she wrote years before reporting. Then it's the defence barrister's turn. He stands up and begins. Beyond reasonable doubt. Not probably. Not possibly. Beyond reasonable doubt. He then forensically lists the discrepancies in witness accounts in his slow, convincing style. The jury retire to consider their verdict. Megan feels like whatever happens from here, it's incredible she's made it this far. Around 85% of sexual assaults are never reported, and if they are and do make it to court, the conviction rate is lower than other crimes. That's because it's usually just word against word, which is hard to prove beyond reasonable doubt. But there are recommendations to change this. The Victorian Law Reform Commission wants better access to options besides beyond reasonable doubt criminal prosecutions. They'd like to see more civil cases. Those use a lower standard of proof. And while they don't result in jail time, they can include compensation. And the Commission recommends training for defence barristers and judges who still push the boundaries with victim-blaming and slut-shaming during cross-examinations. It's day four of the trial. Verdict day. I've just ducked out to get a sandwich after waiting outside the courtroom all morning to see if there might be a verdict. And I just got a message from the complainant to say that the verdict's going to be in 15 minutes. So I'm just running back to the courtroom to see what it'll be. The judge enters the courtroom with a smile. Then the jury file in and sit down at their benches. The clerk calls up the juror acting as speaker. Do you have a verdict? Yes. What is the verdict? Not guilty. I can see Megan's name on the screen, but in place of her video, there's just a black box. A few weeks later, Megan sends me an audio diary explaining what was going on for her behind the black box. When I heard the words not guilty, it's my heart just sank instantly and I felt sick. 
She'd thought it wouldn't matter to her what the verdict was, but it did. Even as I was giving evidence, I still did not think, I hope he goes away. I was fully accepting that it was likely not guilty and that that didn't matter to me anyway. So it was completely unexpected when I started to watch the video link. I was shaking so hard, um, hyperventilating. I don't think I'd ever been in as strong a panic. She told me she watched the verdict alone, and when she stood up, she had to hold on to the wall. She called to her husband in the next room. Did you hear that? The realisation that unless you have some kind of irrefutable physical evidence, then that burden of proof of um, beyond a reasonable doubt, I think, just is not possible. Um, I certainly don't disagree with the jury. I think if I was in that same position, I'd probably make the same call. I was told that the instructions included phrases such as, if you think it probably happened, you have to say not guilty. If you think it almost definitely happened, you have to say not guilty. You have to know beyond a reasonable doubt that it did occur in this way to come to a guilty verdict. Given this, would she still encourage other women to go to police? I definitely still would encourage others to report. I know it It's difficult to recommend that now, knowing that I'm a white female in a hetero relationship with a stable income and a roof over my head. And I know that there are a lot of people who aren't in my position who would have barriers that I couldn't even imagine to making this report. I would recommend to anybody who is in a position where they can take on that kind of challenge that it's definitely worth doing. The empowerment that I've gotten from it is something that I never thought I would have. In court, she felt heard, and that was enough. I've been validated. I've been seen as an important member of the community who deserves justice is absolutely life-changing. It stops being just this horrible, dark memory in your brain that stops you from doing things and wakes you up at night and follows you everywhere you go to suddenly being part of the real world. It was explained to me that it's not me versus the accused. It's the state charging the accused person of the crime. It makes it a lot easier to talk about a crime against a state than it is to talk about a rape that happened to you. And I'm part of that state. It wasn't the answer I expected when I started this story, or even now. But Megan is adamant. A guilty verdict isn't the only measure of success. The other element to success 
in this process. You know, has it worked? Is it worth doing? Is, I think, how the, the victim copes. Having somebody walk away saying, I'm so glad I did that, I'm so glad I reported this crime to the police, is also a victory. So, And in my case, that's certainly the victory that I have. Background Briefing's sound producers are Lila Shuna and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Bethany Stewart. Fact-checking by Ben Sveen and Ty King. Our supervising producer is Mario Christodoulou. The executive producer is Fanu Falali. And I'm Annika Blau. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.